Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey guys, before this episode starts, I want to talk about some pretty cool news. Oki Investigations now has its own website. It's truecrime.blog. And it is a running blog for crime stories and for this show. So if you're a true crime buff and you want to see some cool things that we gathered while researching each show, including a like timeline of events that we put together, uh, newspaper clippings, court documents, and much, much more. Come check us out at truecrime.blog. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Okie Investigations. My name is Trevor Shelby. This week, we're putting out a bonus episode instead of our regular episodes. I've not been feeling 100% this week, and instead of making you all suffer through my stuffy voice, we're going to replay one of my favorite episodes, the Midwest City, Oklahoma Cannibal If you haven't heard it yet, you're in for a treat. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Oki Investigations. In this episode, we're going to discuss the cannibal who killed and ate his father in Midwest City, Oklahoma. This was in 1977, which was actually a pivotal year for Oklahoma's darker history. But this remains one of the most shocking crimes in Oklahoma history. In this episode, we'll discuss what happened, why, and what's happened since. But first, if you're a first-time listener, to experience this podcast to its finest, hit that subscribe button. So when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Then you can head on over to our Facebook page. Here we can discuss the case together. And perhaps come with our own theories on the many cases that will be featured on this show. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash Okie Investigations. This has been a pretty good week for me. We're on episode three, guys. It's pretty amazing. I'm having a lot of fun doing this show. I want to say thank you for everyone that's left comments that have said such nice things about the show. We've got a few messages from people that want us to look into other cases. That's amazing. That's a lot of that's that's going to be on our agenda definitely. If you have anything you want us to look into, or if you have any um, stories or anything that you think that should be told, head on over to our Facebook page. Definitely let me know. You can send me a message, or you can just post on there. That's fine. I stumbled upon this case uh, reading about different cases in Oklahoma's history a lot of these have really kind of like captivated me and really kind of pulled me in so looking into these has been been quite a bit of fun this case in particular was pretty interesting because this is a little bit out of the norm for Oklahoma there's not a not a lot of cannibalistic history here in Oklahoma so this was pretty interesting Police officers are trained to be ever vigilant. They have to be because anything can seriously happen to a police officer. Uh, they can stumble upon something. They can pull over the wrong person at the wrong time. And 
you know, just about anything could happen at any given time. Now, in May of 1977, police were asked to do a welfare check on Theodore Canatis. The responding officers at the scene were Steve Taylor and Phil Anderson. The little information that they knew at the time was that Theodore hadn't been seen in some time uh, since earlier that week, and they knew that his son was a former mental patient. So I guess they were just kind of worried and just wanted to check in on him, make sure he's okay. So the officers responded, and they got to, it was a townhouse, a little two-story townhouse. So they get up to the front door, they're knocking, there's no answer. Uh, Being that it's a welfare check, they're going to maybe peek in some windows, walk around, see what they can do. And they, they walk around to the back of the building, and they notice that an upstairs window on the second floor... It's got curtains blown through. It's open. You can see the curtains kind of breezing through. So they decide that they're going to maybe take a peek and go in that way and make sure everything's okay. So the officers go over and they pick up a nearby picnic table. They position it underneath the open upstairs window. Then so they made sure that they could reach. They got a a, a large uh, brick block that was, it was described as a, it was probably a center block. So they put that on the table. Then Officer Taylor helped Officer Anderson up into the window, and then vice versa, Anderson helped Taylor uh, get up. He pulled him up through the window. So it was almost immediately clear that they had stumbled into something pretty grisly. Uh, the officers had reported that. There was blood just all over the apartment. They were in a bedroom, I believe, that they pulled themselves up into. And there was just blood all over the dresser. There was blood in the hall. They said they saw the bathroom. Uh, at this time, they had they weren't sure if they were alone in this place. So they had, you know, drew their weapons. They said by the time they reached the bathroom, they knew it was a pretty much... It was, this was a murder scene. This was not an accident. This was deliberate at the time, the officers actually reported that they were whispering to each other that they pretty much thought that they had a dissected body uh, on their hands, that somebody was dismembered in that bathroom. Now, the officers then proceeded to go downstairs. There was a spiral metal staircase in the house, so they go downstairs, and that's when they find the kitchen. The officers reported seeing a skillet on the stove that had... Uh, some meat in it they proceeded to open the refrigerator in the fridge they found a bunch of unpacked meat then they opened the freezer where they were shocked to find a a pair of clutching hands officer taylor was quoted at the time of saying i used to work in a mortuary i've never seen flesh like that before pretty crazy scene at that point the officer's then exited the townhouse. They knew that there was nobody in there, that whoever it was that was there is now gone. And uh, so at this point, the officers know that there's nobody in here, so they decide they're going to exit the scene, and they uh, step outside the apartment. They radio for help. What a crazy and grisly way... Uh, to kind of find yourself in this whole scene. Now, at this point, the police are fairly certain that the meat that they found in the refrigerator and all that is is human remains. 
and they're under the assumption that already that it's Theodore and that his son Gregory has probably done something. So at this point, Gregory is missing. Nobody has really seen him. The only person that's seen him last was the neighbor that initially made the report, and that was because he saw Gregory outside dumping meat into the dumpster. Well, now officers believe that when they were knocking on the front door, Gregory was still in the apartment, and he actually escaped through that upstairs window. That's why it was probably opened. The officers stated that if they just maybe went around the house the other direction, they might have ran into Gregory. They might have been able to take him into custody at that point. But as just circumstances happened, they went the other direction and they did not see Gregory escaping. One of the things that's often never noted is maybe the officer's mental state after you know, coming upon a scene like this. And the paper that I've been looking at, the Daily Oklahoman, uh, did a great article on this uh, when, when all of this was first coming to light. And they actually noted that the Officer Taylor um, was, was visibly shaken uh, by what they had found, um, almost stuttering when he was reciting what they had found at the scene. Now, a lot of people don't think about what police officers go through day to day it really takes a uh, someone with a really strong mind to be a police officer and to continue doing a job where you see stuff like this at any given moment can you imagine working a job where your uh, job is to respond to only to accidents there are officers that do that they identify fatal accidents they deal with people that are mangled in cars uh, that's that kind of stuff is just you know that would wear on you over time and so stuff like this probably stuck with these officers a long long time probably for the rest of their lives now later that night gregory the victim's son was found asleep outside and so he was found by neighbors. The neighbors called the police. The police came in. They picked him up. By all accounts that I've seen is that Gregory was pretty open about what happened. Unapologetic. Seemingly mentally unstable. Gregory openly confessed to what he had done. But it was obvious that he could probably go the insanity route when it came to uh, the trial, if there was a trial. So as a way to not waste the taxpayer's money by bringing a case that could probably be ended by a psychiatric evaluation, the judge decided to order that Gregory's mental state be evaluated. So they sent him to the uh, psychiatric hospital in Norman, Oklahoma. I believe they kept him for 60 days. And it was their determination that there was just no way this man could stand trial. Uh, he was not mentally competent, basically. It was uh, ruled that could not stand trial at this time. Now, one thing the judge did do was he left it open. If Gregory did happen to become mentally stable, he could then, in fact, be tried for his father's murder. And that's important later on. Gregory spends some time in Norman, and then he's eventually moved to Venita, 
which is the more lockdown type unit for a mental hospital. Everyone's kind of in a prison type environment. Uh, he's he's moved down there to Venita, and that's where he spends the next, you know, <laughs> from the nineteen the late nineteen seventies to the to the mid nineteen nineties. So in the nineteen nineties, the um, Department of Mental Health is going under a lot of changes, and they aren't holding people in their facilities as long as they had been in the past and so in this you know movement anybody that that probably mentally could be in society they were you know encouraging them to go ahead and move out into society and which is a very positive and wonderful program but in this case uh, this wasn't a very liked thing for the district attorney in Oklahoma County. They found out that Gregory had moved back to the city, I believe, and he was working as a grocery clerk and he was bagging groceries. So the DA uh, went to Gregory and pretty much said, if you're competent to be out in public, then you're competent to stand trial for your father's murder and pretty much encouraged him to return yourself to Venita. And that's exactly what Gregory did. He packed his things, went back to Venita, and that's where he spent the remainder of his life. In 2014, Gregory passed away of heart complications uh, due to, I guess it was aggravated by his cigarette smoking. But yeah, he ended up died while in state custody. If you go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Oki Investigations, I will probably have already posted the uh, death certificate, which I found online, along with other information and articles about this case. One of the things I think is crazy about this case is I've never heard of it. At the beginning of the episode, I said I stumbled on this case, which, yeah, I really stumbled on it. It was, I was just doing some research and this one popped up and I was like, well, this is interesting. And it's in the town that I live in now. So it, that's where it happened in Midwest city. I grew up in Choctaw, which is like just down the road. And it's kind of hard to believe that uh, something like this could happen. And it just, you know, nobody talks about it. Now let's talk about some of Oklahoma's darker history Let's step back to 1934. Now, through the course of this story, I want you guys to ask yourselves, can a murderer, a convicted murderer, redeem himself? Is there a possible way in your mind, can somebody that's committed a heinous murder redeem themselves in your eyes? Might be possible. Let's listen to the story. Now, it's just after Thanksgiving Day, and Phil Kinammer and John Gorell are driving down the road, and suddenly a scuffle breaks out. And when it's all said and done, Kinammer has killed his friend with two shots to the head. Now, what made this such a big crime is that both Kinammer and Gorell were a part of a society called the High Hat Club. And what they were is a elitist society of Oklahoma's wealthiest kids. Their parents had achieved something great, 
and they were kind of spoiled and given everything. Uh, Phil Kinammer, his father was a prominent judge, a federal judge in Tulsa. John Gorell's father was a prominent surgeon. Other members in the club included sons of oil tycoons and major businessmen of the time. Now, according to Ken Amber's defense, he had to kill Gorell because Gorell was going to be going after the woman he loved, Miss Virginia Wilcox. She was the daughter of a major oil tycoon here in Oklahoma, Homer Wilcox. Now, Virginia was no stranger to Ken Ammer. They had dated a few times. By all accounts, Phil Ken Ammer was just enamored with her. He was just gaga for this girl. Now, apparently a lot of the kids in this hi-hat club were no um, strangers to committing uh, some major crimes. They were planning on kidnapping Virginia Wilcox in order to extort some money from her father. Gorell was the mastermind of this plot, and Kidammer did everything he could, according to his defense anyways, that he he tried to steer Gorell into other directions, different types of extortion, different types of crimes that they could maybe make some money. One of the things that they thought about doing was maybe selling beer and sandwiches, um, just to kind of like a lemonade stand, I guess, but they were going to uh, kind of kind of uh, do that to, to earn a little bit extra, you know, some extra money. The other plan was they were going to strong arm a lot of the businesses in the area, uh, get some protection money. Um, maybe uh, one of the things was they were going to send some wealthy people in Oklahoma a letter stating you know, that we know how many children you have, and if you would like to protect their lives, uh, send us $20,000. And there was evidence of that. One of the things that they did was they gave the letter to Ken Ammer to mail, and he never mailed it for whatever reason. Um, but every time one of these plans failed, they ultimately went back to this idea of kidnapping Virginia Wilcox. It was this notion that kept driving Phil Kinammer closer and closer to committing this murder. So finally, just after Thanksgiving 1934, Phil Kinammer has had enough of this. He's, now according to this defense, is that he, this is the point where he has a mental breakdown and he decides he's going to go to Kansas City where Grell is studying dentistry and he planned on ending his life. One of the prosecution's major witnesses was Floyd Huff, who said, Ken Emmer asked me if I knew why he came to Kansas City. I told him I did not, and asked him why. And he said, I came up to kill Gorell. I looked at the boy and said, you do not believe me. He told me his intentions were to rent an airplane, and that they were going to take a ride above the clouds, and when they got up there, he was going to hit Gorell over the head, and he was going to jump out in a parachute, I guess. And the only way he could have gone is if he intended to live. Now, this was an important statement for the prosecution because in many ways, this proved that there was premeditation in this crime. This was not something that was done in the heat of passion or was part of some insane mind's thoughts. But 
this was completely unlike Kinammer, and they were using these statements as proof that Kinammer had gone insane at this time and had no control over what he was doing. The plot to kill Garel was quickly foiled by the fact that there was no airplanes to rent, so that was out the window. So it wasn't long after Ken Ammer just decided he's just going to go for it. He's going to kill him with a knife. So that night, Ken Ammer shows up with a knife at the local tavern and pretty much boasts to anybody that would listen that he's looking for Garel and he's going to murder him. The other High Hatters were there. They were able to come over and uh, get the knife away from Ken Ammer and... Kim Ammer was reported to have said, Are you going to send me out there with these bare hands to kill Garel? I said, Yes, if that's the way you want to go, Phil. And he walked and just left at the tavern at that time. Now, it wasn't long after that that Kim Ammer finally did find Garel. They got in a car. As they're driving down the road, Garel pulls out a pistol, apparently attempting to kill Kim Ammer, who has been boasting to everybody he's gonna kill him ken Ammer manages to wrestle the pistol away and then shoots Garel twice in the head now i honestly don't believe Garel brought the pistol into play i think that this was just ken Ammer's. um it was his attempt at doing a self-defense uh, kind of play here uh, i had to kill him because he was going to kill me kind of thing so this whole trial comes to head. Pretty much the, the jury had, had had a few options. They could do murder one. They could find him guilty of manslaughter if they believe that the crime was not premeditated. Or they could find him not guilty or not guilty by reason of insanity. The jury in this case didn't believe Ken Amber's story. And they found him guilty, but they did not convict him of murder one what they did was they convicted him of just manslaughter the judge in this case gave ken ammer 25 years in prison now you might expect being the son of a prominent uh, federal judge might uh, get you a little bit of leniency or maybe make it easier to appeal things but that did not work in ken ammer's case now i asked you at the beginning of the story can a man who is obviously a murderer redeem himself is there a way that he can redeem himself in your eyes where you can say this man lived a good life at least maybe for part of it well in 1944 we were in the midst of world war ii and ken ammer was given parole with the stipulation that he joined the army he got the opportunity uh, finally to jump out of airplanes when he jumped with the 13th airborne 460th parachute artillery battalion he died in france on august 14 1944 now i can't speak for everyone here but i do feel like somebody that died protecting our country is a hero and even though he made some questionable decisions in his life i think as he grew older he matured and found that there's some things more important than just his life and yeah he he died for us now does this make up for the fact that he killed Garel? no it doesn't 
but what I think it does show is that even somebody who is a murderer can change and do something important with their life. Now, what are your thoughts on this subject? If you'd like to leave me a message, go to anchor.fm forward slash Investigations. Then at the top of the page, you will see a message button. When you click that, you'll be able to record your own message um, and tell me, what do you think, uh, one way or the other? Uh, can somebody redeem themselves that's a murderer? Uh, even somebody that has served our country, perhaps? Or perhaps somebody that's done their time and maybe just became a better person? Uh, let me know what you think. You can also connect to us at facebook.com forward slash Investigations. Thank you guys for listening, and I will see you guys next time. See ya. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.